0: Podcast. I'm Bob Mooney, General Counsel for Oyster Consulting. Each year, the SEC publishes its exam priorities for the coming year. Join us for today's podcast as Oyster Consulting's capital markets experts, Jeff Gearhart, Frank Childress, and Jose Fernandez, share their thoughts on the priorities related to broker dealer trading practices, including Rule 15C 211, Reg Show, Reg ATS, and filing requirements. Let's get started. Jeff.
1: Thanks, Bob. We're, we're here today to talk about the, the SEC priorities, particularly the broker-dealer trading practices. I think it was an interesting selection of priorities because we know that uh, they're going to st- remain diligent on best execution, uh, market access, and all the regular topics as well. But the, these are the ones they chose to highlight for this year. Frank, Jose, you guys were both at uh, some recent industry events. Do You have any perspective on what the SEC might be talking about around 15C211, um, both from their priorities and maybe just any any ideas on general updates?
0: Sure, I'll I'll kick that off, Jeff. Um, so they, it's interesting. The SEC's looked at uh, 15C211, which is a, uh, essentially a quoting uh, reg uh and they've looked at it on both the equity and fixed income side in recent years um on the equity side i'll speak to the equity side and then and flip it over to uh jose with respect to fixed income on the equity side uh the rules changed in late 2020 uh so almost exactly three years ago uh to create a, the otc market so this this applies really to uh to non-listed securities since listed securities are automatically quoted on the on their various exchanges, uh, but the OTC markets, in conjunction with the SEC, work together to create a, uh, effectively a a model where they require greater uh, dis- financial disclosure disclosure for the uh, equities within OTC markets within the issuers, and to the extent that they don't uh, comply with those financials they effectively get bumped off from a a quoting montage. Uh, So they're no longer eligible to be quoted. They go to less transparent markets like the Grays. So this uh, this rule effectively uh, largely eliminated the rule for wholesalers to fill out the 15C211 form because OTC markets took it upon themselves uh, to serve as effectively a warehouse for those financials, and that they would be the entity for publishing the quotes. So I found it a little curious why the SEC would identify this as a quote-unquote priority with respect to wholesalers um, in the equity marketplace. So it'll be interesting to see uh, as that develops, and I've I've talked to some wholesalers about this as well. So almost exactly a year ago, uh, the SEC, reached out to attempt to apply this longstanding equity quoting rule uh, to fixed income securities because they were considered OTC uh, on an OTC market. So I'll let Jose kind of explain how that was received and uh, and how they managed through that. So Jose, I'll turn it over to you on the fixed income side. Yeah,
2: thank you. Um, you know, this is, a, this is an interesting one, right? So this is one whereby, um, you know, the, the rule itself dates back to 1971. You know it's been in place for quite some time and after nearly 50 years they're um looking to apply this to the fixed income markets right so back in uh, 2020 there were some amendments that were made to modernize uh the term is used uh, 15c 211 um, to account for advances in communications and technologies and such you know obviously the industry had some pushback um and after several extensions um it was expected to start being enforced uh, again in the fixed income markets uh, starting January 4th of 2025. However, through uh, continued efforts with the market participants and comment periods and, you know, again leveraging a lot of the um, trade groups that are out there in associations that um, provide legislative and advocacy for a lot of the member firms, they were able to provide some thoughts around how this is not applicable to certain parts of the fixed income markets, and specifically uh, 144A securities. And uh, oddly enough, as I was at the uh, BDA National Fixed Income Conference in D.C., you know, they were meeting to uh, review and approve uh, these amendments. They came back, uh, and I think they officially published something on October 30th, I want to say, Uh, basically excluding 144A securities in the fixed income space from this requirement. Now, that is obviously a win for the industry from the standpoint of that is the one area that seemed to get a lot of attention from the industry. You know, one thing to note is that, you know, the exceptions that were approved um, do not cover certain fixed income securities that the market participants need to be aware of. And specifically uh, just as a few examples are those that are issued under Regulation S, uh, Section 4A2, Section 4A1, and or uh, Regulation D, right? So those are examples where the (laughs) exemption will not cover. However, they will be covered um, under the relief order, uh, which again extends to about January 2025, I believe, and you know should be duly noted. The other thing to consider here is that there are certain securities, which may still be in focus for this, and specifically around the safe harbor of Rule 144A, and that is equity securities that are sold in compliance with the safe harbor. So, again, I want to point out that um, the order—the exemption order was for fixed income securities pursuant to an exemption from Registration 144A. Uh, However, it does not cover equity securities that are sold under that safe harbor as well. So, uh, still a lot more to come, uh, I'm sure, on this. Um, I'm sure the market participants will still continue to provide feedback and try to get to a place where the rule, you know, if it's going to be applied to fixed income securities, is applied in a manner that is, you know, makes sense and, and, you know, one of the terms of Phrases that the regulators seem to be using these days is um, uh, one that is not too onerous, right, on the industry. And so, yeah, more to come on that on the fixed income side. But it is definitely interesting that, you know, they took a rule that was uh, 50-some years old and uh, are now uh, looking for applicability to the fixed income based off, you know, the OTC, over-the-counter definition.
1: You know, an interesting point to add here, there's a no action letter out there, but I'm aware of several instances where during a regularly scheduled exam, FINRA commented on the lack of WSPs for 15 C211 covering fixed income products. So, it's probably relevant for firms to just throw a section in there and determine how applicable it is to them, um, or at least say that it's not applicable because despite the no action letter, they're making some comments on it. So,
0: yeah, it's a little, uh, as we indicated up front, it's a little unclear uh, within the uh, SEC priorities letter whether they're looking at equities or fixed income. They do reference specifically wholesale market makers, which traditionally feels like uh, the equity marketplace. Uh, So, I guess everybody should be aware and should be thinking about this as as they get into their sec exams but they specifically call out uh including quote generation uh, order routing and execution practices um, market data ingestion uh, and regulatory controls and risk management so regardless of equity or fixed income um, certainly something to be aware of
2: So uh, one of the other topics if i can uh, kind of uh switch gears a little bit um still kind of in that equity space but uh you know is red show um which again made the list and a continued focus of the sec uh i think if uh remember serves me right i think there's 14 or so awcs between january 2022 and september of 2023 often resulting in significant uh, dollars as far as uh fines and and sanctions, uh, SEC mentioned a focus on aggregation units.
1: Uh, any insight there? Yeah, um, you know, I, I can expand a little bit on that. If you recall from Reg Show, there's a requirement to determine the, for a firm to determine their net position in order in order to mark a sale transaction as a long sale, short sale, uh, unless you're you're under the market making exemption. Well, for large complex organizations, that can be quite a challenge. An aggregation unit actually gives you the ability to define a unique trading group and determine your net position based on that, what we're gonna call an aggregation unit. So it makes a lot of sense, it can be really efficient. But the key is to qualify, a firm must first have a written plan or organization in place to define that, that um, trading unit. And that includes the objective, Um, and supporting why it makes sense for them for that group to be separate from the other groups if if and when a firm does that whenever they're doing trading they just focus on that individual group to determine their net position now a couple requirements that are, are key here all traders that are within that unit must be trading the same strategy or have the same objective also, any individual trader assigned to that unit, that can be the only unit they're assigned to. So, makes sense, but you can easily see what could go wrong here. We've all been around trading shops, and they they make sense at the beginning when you set these up. But if you don't maintain the definition of the, the aggregation unit clearly, make sure that the people in there are trading within the strategy. Make sure if a trader just switches desks or, or changes their strategy, they get reassigned. There's the potential to corrupt the aggregation unit, if you will, which then would become a violation of rig show because you wouldn't be determining be determining your net position. So it can be complicated. This is a way to simplify it, but you need to make sure that you're you're keeping that unit well defined, you know periodic reviews, you know i I think it could easily be incorporated into um, a review of risk limits, trading mandates, uh, any any other type of normal committee review or process review. So I can see why the SEC is focused on here because it does have the potential, like anything else, to be not, you know, in, in the front of your mind and changes happen and you don't keep it current.
2: Yeah, no, that's that's great insight. Now, what about the, um, uh, I, I believe there's some locate requirements. You know, what, what's the focus there?
0: Yeah, the uh, so the locate requirements, and this this ties right into the SEC's 2000, excuse me, Finra's 2023 examination and risk monitoring program requirements, and they do a good job of outlining some of the issues related to locates. But sort of the old practice of just having a firm's name documented within a locate is not going to uh, apply. You need greater detail on on what the uh, what the locate is, where the locate is coming from, and they also within FINR does a nice job within their findings and effective practices with kind of really laying out where, where they're targeting. Uh, so within their findings, they found that uh, sort of impermissible use, reuse of locates. So there's FAQs that address this that are certainly available to you, but the sort of effective practices. Would require the supervision of any kind of reuse of locates, um, and that includes the developing appropriate policies and procedures um, to make sure that you're in guidance with what they refer to as a uh, question 4.4.4, 4. 4, the uh, Reg Show, SEC's Reg Show FAQs. So, using hard blocks and on threshold securities or easy to borrow lists um, as limits for on reuse. Um, and to make sure that you have systems checks to allow uh, reuse only in securities that are deemed easy to borrow. Um, So these are just standard blocking and tackling documentation that you need to have in place. Um, And FINRA, both FINRA and the SEC do a pretty good job within their FAQs and their, and FINRA's report on giving you some good guidance uh, on how to manage your uh, locates. Frank,
1: this is, um I like the term blocking and tackling. This is pretty basic, right? Firms should have this embedded in their technology in their OMS. It should be a normal process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the uh, uh, I think virtually all OMSs at this point have the ability to capture that and document it. And so, uh, if you're not already working with your OMS to make sure that that's in place, that's that's something you should think about. Right. Um. Uh, from from my review of prior
1: AWC's, things of that nature, where things go wrong here, usually a change management type event where they, they may be updating the technology and sometimes then a code could change and, and maybe uh, a short sale is not correctly flagged, so then, then the technology control doesn't automatically require the locator, the locate information, some basic things like that. So focusing on change management management controls I think is key on this topic. Uh, otherwise, you're, it's really not something that you should screw up. Um, and it certainly is not something you want to make a mistake on because it'll be a, get expensive.
0: So now we come to the last topic we wanted to address within the uh, SCC priorities. Um, so, the SEC notes uh, a focus on Reg ATS and filing requirements. Uh, Jeff, you want to provide a little background on this? Uh, certainly, we're, we continue to see somewhat of a proliferation of ATSs, both on the fixed in- income and equity side. You want to elaborate about what the SEC is looking
1: at? Sure. Um, the 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 number of ATSs does continue to increase, and, and particularly um, Digital assets, things of that nature. Uh, I think as of the end of September, there were 69 registered with the SEC. Um, if you're ever curious, the SEC puts out a monthly list of all the ATSs. Um, if if you want to see what's going on out there, but keep in mind, with an ATS form, ATS, it's a notification that you file with the SEC. So you're not asking their approval to run the ATS. You're filing a form with them, telling them you are going to start an, uh, an ATS, and Uh, that form has to to give certain information information about the operation the order entry procedures the display of orders and and quotes um, the role of any entity that's associated in supporting it so basically it's it's close to a business plan maybe not the financial aspect but it's a business plan on how, how how the ATS works and when when you think about running an ATS Remember all the principles of fair trade are still in place. You you have to to run the ATS, the the quoting, the order matching, everything along those lines so that it's fair for everyone and it doesn't incent one client over another or anything of that nature. A Form ATS or Form ATSN if you're going to trade NMS stocks is is required before you start operations and it's also required whenever you're going to make a substantial change to the operation of the platform and typically the the form has to be filed um 20 days 20 days before material change in the operation Um, and then if you find at some point that the form you have on file is not accurate or it needs to be amended you have to file that within 30 days after after quarter end so to make sure you're meeting the requirements and the form ats you have on file with the sec is accurate um, you need to implement that into the regular review of your operations Um, really important here you need to make sure your disclosures are are clear for the clients or counterparties that are using the platform make sure they're accurate and they 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 truly define how the ats is, is working and if you have key vendors or key counterparts or key partners um, that are operating on the platform, you need to make sure those are clearly disclosed. There was a recent AWC that actually cited a firm for exactly that, um, where they weren't um, properly disclosing all the, all the key interested parties in the platform. Now, I think this is also an important point because it, you know, we're only talking about Form ATS here, but remember, an ATS has to be sponsored by a broker dealer and a broker-dealer has a membership agreement with FINRA or some type of guiding document. So anytime you're making a substantial change, very likely could require a change to your membership agreement, so you might have to go through the CMA process. And also keep in mind that if you have a very successful ATS, you're probably going to bring in Regus SCI and, and some other rules around the stability of the platform, making sure it's consistently there, um and available to clients you have a adequate business recovery plan things of that nature so I can see again why the SEC is focusing on this given the proliferation of ATSs um, the number and types of assets that are traded on them they want to make sure there's not a disruption to the uh, marketplace and this is a case where firms just need to remain diligent I mean it is a trading platform it's not an exchange but but you need to make sure that it's it's being made available and uh, to clients so they can trade when they need. You could include it in your market access reviews, you can include it in annual certifications or new product business committee changes, any normal standard process that might pick up oversight of this. Keep in mind Form ATS is for a change in material business. This is different than the um, Form ATSR, which you just have to file monthly, which shows volumes and activity on the platform.
2: Yeah, Jeff. I was just going to say, um, you know, one thing to add, and you touched on this briefly when uh, you mentioned that the uh, ATS uh, one of the requirements of this ATS is that you do not prohibit or limit access to in a discriminatory manner, right? And so this all comes under uh, 301B5 uh, and uh, within the uh, Reg ATS, uh, which is otherwise known as the Fair Access Rule. But one other point I want to make with regards to that particular provision is that, you know, a firm, once they exceed the significant percentage of overall trading, right, the 5%, they have a requirement, right, to have uh, written standards for granting access for trading uh, on the ATS, right? So, um, I think if you, uh, as you were mentioning, AWS kind of came to mind as, you know, one whereby um, the findings were that uh, they failed to establish written standards for granting access to the ATS. So um, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the granularity in which this uh, particular rule and uh, some of the provisions within it outline. Uh, but it's certainly worth noting that, um, as with anything else, right, you have you know written supervisory procedures. You have a process, right? All that needs to be documented. Uh, otherwise, you know, it kind of opens up the firm for potential scrutiny from regulators or other other bodies. So, I just wanted to point that out.
1: So So those are the priorities the SEC uh, published recently. and I think they're continue to be focused on a lot of other topics such as best execution and market access. Uh, in, in our role with Oyster as consultants, we are actively engaged with a lot of our clients and get direct feedback on the questions they have from the SEC uh, and or FinRA, whether it's a, a unique, focused review or just a, a standard review. So we see what's happening and we, we can help you respond to these questions, set up best practices, and hopefully not, um, but remediate remediate any issues that, that come up. Feel free to give us a call, even if you just want to chat on the topic.
0: Thanks everyone for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our experts and how Oyster can help your firm, visit our website at OysterLLC.com. If you like what you heard today, follow us on whatever platform you listen to and give us a review. Reviews make it easier for people to find us. Have a great day.